Today in our group discussion, there were several people who were involved with issues of trust, of faith, uh, of fear, and the relationship between them. And what I like to do sometimes with the evening Dharma talk is to take something that we're discussing in a group that seems relevant to some of the people uh, at the retreat and to somewhat expand on what we talked about uh, during our session together. And we all have fear. There isn't one of us who doesn't have fear. And developing more trust and more faith is absolutely essential in our spiritual development. It's one of the main reasons why we're here um, is to develop more faith and more trust. That's a major part of our spiritual <coughs> development. So I trust what I'll be talking about this evening will be not just relevant to those few people who were in the discussion group but to many more of us, because this is something that we're all working with, I'm sure, to varying degrees at this point, perhaps. But if we're not working with it now, we'll be working with it more at some time into the future. <laughs> fear. What kinds of fears are there? Essentially, I see two main categories of fears. One is a kind of rational fear that relates to the preservation of our body. Um, if we're walking across a busy road and a truck is coming towards us, fear may say, we better get out of the way, or the truck is going to hit us and do some bodily harm. Um, so it makes sense to get out of the way, and fear is giving us a message. Um, that we need to act. If we're walking down a city street and it's late at night and in the distance we hear some people talking loudly, being rowdy, making noise, it just doesn't feel like a good vibration happening in the distance. And Sensing that, some fear arises in us. It might be better to take a more circuitous route around to where we want to go to rather than to pass by and take the chance of some kind of bodily harm. It's skillful action to listen intuitively to what our heart is telling us, even if there's fear present in the heart at those times, and to act accordingly. accordingly. And this is for the preservation of our body. And we live in a world in which there is a lot of those kinds of dangers. And so when fear arises in these instances, we pay attention, there's skillful action, and that's one kind of fear and an appropriate response to that fear. But then there's a whole other category of fears that are much less rational and that we seem to be involved with a lot of the time. In fact, the more that we start paying attention to our fears and what they are and how many of them are, 
we see how fearful we really are. A lot of the fears having to do with um, feelings of unworthiness, a fear of not being accepted by others, a fear of rejection is very strong, a fear that we won't be loved by others, a fear if we are loved by others that they will withdraw their love from us, a fear of not getting what we need in life, and this is so, so, so strong with many of us, that our needs are not going to be met. And if we're struggling that way right now in our life where our needs are being met, and there's fear around that, it's very important to look at it. Fear of physical survival. What will happen? How will I get along? What does the future have to hold for me? Fear of what we're going to be doing with the rest of our life. How will it go? How will it unfold for us? Fear of not having control of our life, of losing control. Fear of the intensity of what's happening around us and inside of ourselves and not knowing how to deal with that. Especially a fear of the intensity of the emotions that are inside. Especially if there is strong fear, if there's strong negativity, if there's strong anger, strong rage inside. That at some level we know that that intensity is there and there's a fear of that intensity. When we get stuck in fear, when fear arises and we're not aware of the fear or because of the intensity of the fear, we become overcome with the fear, it tends to solidify the sense of self. We feel more solid all of a sudden. We feel stuck. We feel contracted inside of ourselves. There's very little movement of energy. There's no love that seems to be present. We feel very bound by the fears that are there. And sometimes the cause for the fear is related to earlier childhood experiences, as many, many people have, where we grow up in a situation, in an abusive family situation perhaps, where there's alcoholism, where there's violence, where there's some kind of abuse, sexual, emotional abuse, whatever, that we grow up in the context of that kind of family in that situation. And with that, there is so much anger and rage and pain inside of ourselves because of having to be in that kind of situation that we have to find some way of protecting ourselves. Anyway, in order to survive, we have to find some way of protecting ourselves. Sometimes it's loss of memory, where we don't remember what happened. We suppress the thoughts, we suppress the memories. And that's a way of protecting ourselves. Sometimes um, it's by um, putting on an armor of defense of some kind, of pride, of arrogance, or of anger or feelings of aloofness, or whatever it is that will in some way help us to 
find some distance from the pain that we feel inside of ourselves. And there's a lot of fear of what if I allowed myself to experience that pain? If I allowed myself to experience that pain, would I be able to survive? Or would there be complete annihilation of oneself on some level? And that is the ultimate fear that many of us have, is the fear of death. Not fear just of the physical body dying, but fear of an emotional kind of death, an emotional kind of annihilation, where we would not be able to be with the degree and the intensity of the emotional pain that's present inside of ourselves. That is too scary. We have to find some way of controlling the situation of controlling our life so that we're able to cope with what is there. Needless to say, not only is the element of fear strong in that kind of situation, but also what happens to trust? How can we trust? How can we trust the people around us? We can't trust our mother, if we can't trust our father, if we can't trust our leaders, if we can't trust the adults around us, Trust becomes a big issue in one's life. Who can we trust? Can a child trust themselves? It's very difficult for a child to be able to trust themselves because they're a child. The child would be helped by being able to trust those around them who are offering love, who are offering acceptance. But when that's not forthcoming, then what happens to what happens to them? to trust in one's life. Very difficult for a child to say, yes, I am right. What I'm thinking is right. What I'm feeling is right. It's very difficult for a child to, to, to say that. Because if they say that, then it means they have to accept the rage and the anger and the pain and all the emotions that they're living with in that, in that moment, in that situation in their life. Can you imagine how difficult that is? For a child to say, yes, I'm right, and you are wrong, it's easier to say, to suppress all of those feelings, or to say, the parent is right, and deny what they're feeling inside of themselves. And in that denial and in that suppression, they're being the grounds for fear, for mistrust, for deeper feelings of separation and isolation within ourselves. I don't know how many of you believe in past lives, what that means for you, and the way that you look at yourself, the way that you look at your life right now, how your life has unfolded for you. <coughs> but a lot of fears and distrust relates to what has happened to us in the past, just as what has happened to us earlier in our life affects how we are right now and what we're dealing with. It may make sense that what has happened in the further past 
has in some way conditioned and brought to fruition the issues that we deal with in the early part of our life right now. The world in history is somewhat different than the way that it is now. I mean, here we have gang wars, okay, and one nation against another. That's the kind of warfare primarily that we have, although not exclusively. But as there was the evolution of tribal culture and nomadic and semi-nomadic living, there was a lot of warfare that was taking place. And just warfare in order to survive, one tribe against another, one village against another. And with that kind of tribal warfare and need for survival, there was oftentimes not just the preservation of the physical body and the self and the nation, but an abuse of power as well. Where we may have overstepped our limits, so to say, in the way in, in the fight for survival that there was a lot of killing. There was a lot of violence perpetrated not just for survival, but it goes beyond that, where there is the abuse of power, tremendous abuse of power. That creates a pattern inside of our mind where we find ourselves distrusting ourselves because there has been, in, at some point in our existence, an abuse of power. I see a direct relationship between power and the issue of trust and mistrust, between fear, fear of power, abuse of power, and trust and mistrust. Ramdas once said in a talk that I heard him give that he doesn't trust himself with power because every time he's had power, he's abused it in some way. <laughs> and his guru, Nemkali Baba, was very enlightened and suggesting to him that he never have an ashram or a following of people. He essentially said, keep going, Ram Das. Don't stay in one place too long. <laughs> you know, don't get yourself involved in a situation in which you could be abusing your power. Because, you know, he's a very powerful man. And it would be easy for him to find himself in a situation where there could be, you know, arise the abuse of that kind of power. And I don't think it's just particular to Ramdas, I think it's particular to many of us that we all have power. We all have spiritual power. I mean, that's part of, that's part of human, that's part of who we are, that's part of what we're dealing with, what we're working with. And if at certain points in the evolution of ourselves as a spiritual being, there were times when there was that abuse of power, and you didn't have to be, you know, the emperor of a kingdom, you know, or the pope, in order to abuse, <laughs> in order to abuse power. I mean, it can happen on other levels as well. But when there's the abuse, when there's the abuse of that power, then and it creates patterns of. I can't trust myself because we harm someone in some way. And there's the memory of that. And there's a fear of doing that again. 
And so it leaves us with these various these feelings inside, these subtle feelings of not being able to fully trust ourselves. Some of us have had past lives in which we have very, very little power. I have a sense that we've been through it all, all the power trips, having a lot of power, having very, very little power, having no power. Imagine if you were a slave, you were taken from Africa, you were taken from your family. Um, you were brought to uh, a country that you knew nothing about, had no knowledge of whatsoever, that you were placed in a situation in which all of your human rights were denied to you, a situation in which um, you had no control over your life, that you weren't able to exercise in any way your free will and choice especially on, in terms of the physical level of your life. Internally, mentally, spiritually, nobody can ever take that free will and choice from you. But on the level of your physicality, you know, and what you did in your life, that that was totally um, uh, governed by somebody else. You had no power whatsoever. Can you imagine how devastating that is, to be in that kind of situation? How painful it is, how degrading it is to be in that kind of situation, of being so powerless. How much bitterness and resentment arises in one's heart in being in that kind of situation. The anger, you know, the, the, the feeling of, of poverty in one's heart. I was Recently, as I was in New York, I was in Midtown Manhattan, and, and right in Midtown Manhattan, Times Square, there was a group of black Americans who, had, who were talking on loudspeakers, and a whole group of blacks around them, and they were condemning the white man, saying, you blacks! You don't know how to, you don't know what power is. You don't know how to go about getting power. You know, you have to educate yourself. You should kill the white man. And all these white people were walking by and like, whoa. You know, they were walking in the opposite direction. I was just watching their faces as they were listening to this because it was blaring out. It was like, their eyes were going, <laughs> Check it out, you know. And, I mean, it was just, Pure hatred, violence, anger coming from a place inside of these people of feeling powerless in their lives. That's what lack of influence over one's life does in the sense of a whole society, of a whole culture, of a whole race kind of being brought up in that, in that, within that mold, within that way of thinking that gets passed on. I mean, it is no wonder why there's so much violence within the society as a result of that. 
we, all of us, probably have been in a similar situation at some point in time. In our incarnations, we have been in a similar situation as that. As a result of that, there is this fear of not having control of our life, of knowing where it's going, of what's going to happen, of feeling powerless, of not knowing how to trust, who to trust, what to trust. So we have an incarnation like that, and then we flip back. And say the next incarnation we have after that is an incarnation in which we have the opportunity to have as much power as we want so that we can learn about power. Because what is a human incarnation about? The learning, you know, understanding ourselves more deeply. So we have an incarnation in which there's absolutely no power and then we have the opportunity to move into an incarnation in which there's a possibility of having a lot of power. But in coming into that next incarnation where we have that, that power, what if we abuse it? What if we don't know how to use it? And we abuse that power, we hurt others, we create karma for ourselves as a result of that, as a result of our actions, and that's the meaning of karma. It means actions. So we abuse the power. As a result of abusing the power, we feel tremendous self-judgment and self-hate towards ourselves. Because we've hurt somebody else. When you hurt somebody else, you hurt yourself. Because somebody else is not separate from yourself. When we hurt another, we hurt ourselves. And we all know what that law is. So when we abuse in some way, the abuser is not just abusing somebody else, they're abusing themselves at the same time. There is this gathering of self-hate and judgment and anger that gets built up. I had a, there's a, a perfect example of this was when I was traveling in Africa a long time ago. I was put in prison in Uganda. I was arrested by the Criminal Investigation Department of Uganda. And this was when Idi Amin was in power. In 1971, when Amin came into power. And there was just... I was in, I was in three different prisons in the course of eight days, and they were interrogating me. They thought maybe I was a spy or a mercenary soldier because of the border that I came across. And it was interesting to watch how the abuse of power in the situation there. The man who arrested me sprung Idi Amin from prison and when they performed the coup, and that's how he came into power. And Amin put him in this part of Uganda, the southwestern part of Uganda, to protect that border. And the man was just crazy with power. And they were all crazy with it. I mean, part of that is because for so long, the British and the French, they ruled Africa as they ruled many parts of the world. And so these people didn't have the opportunity to learn how to govern themselves. They were always under the power, under the influence of somebody else. And so the empire left, and then that left room for something to happen in that power vacuum. Amin had a fourth grade education. I'm not sure that many of the other people who were um, uh, 
who were in power around him were much more educated than that. In fact, they were killing off everybody who had any kind of education, which is what happens in a lot of societies in which um, this kind of abuse of power happens. They want to kill off the intelligentsia, essentially. And so I just watched these people, and they were crazy with power. I mean, they had these secret police, and they would just drag people off the streets, and they'd bring them in, they'd interrogate them, they'd beat them if they wanted to, they'd throw them in jail if they wanted to. They'd do all kinds of different things. You know, you could just see how, in that kind of situation, somebody with, who is creating that much karma for themselves, and where there's that much abuse of power, how long, how many incarnations would it take for that person to be able to trust themselves again? How many incarnations would it take before, you know, they could love themselves again? You know, before they could, um, uh, where they wouldn't be um, totally immersed in fear. A long time. A long, long time. I think that many of us have gone through situations of different kinds in which fear and mistrust and abuse of different kinds has um, been played out in our life and that there is the memory of that and that's part of what we're working with now in our present lifetime is to look and understand what those fears are and where the mistrust is and work with it effectively. If we look within ourselves, whenever fear arises, and now that I'm talking about it, I think that you'll start to see it more clearly, and that's why I'm talking about it, obviously, um, is it helps us to be aware of it in the context of our practice here. What happens when we feel fear? What goes on inside of ourselves? You notice that when you feel fear, there's a contraction of the heart. There's a frozenness. It's that everything seems to stop and get stuck. There's a block of the flow of energy through ourselves. It's like, when we're not feeling fear, there's much more openness. And there's much more flow to our life. It's easier to think. It's easier to make decisions about things. The mind is clearer. There just seems to be a flow about ourselves that is very different than when we get stuck with fear. When fear arises and we start to close off, the energy starts to close off, our heart starts to close off, we start to feel separate from other people. We start to feel more of a sense of isolation. That's what fear does. Fear tends to isolate oneself. I remember that one time seeing a movie of Mother Teresa and her life and her work, and they showed all about the poverty in India. You know, and that's one kind of suffering. And then they 
the scene turned to seeing a Sisters of Charity visit with a woman in New York. I don't want to get too down on New York, but <laughs> I'm from there, and also <laughs> seems to be in the news a lot in different ways. Anyway, they showed this woman, this old woman, who lived in a in a very rundown apartment in New York, and she was locked in her apartment. She was fearful. She said, "They'll come up and they'll steal my money." She was just fearful of going out shopping. I mean, she was so fearful. She just isolated herself in her apartment and wouldn't go anywhere. And the sisters of charity said, "This is worse suffering than the suffering of the people in India who are living in the streets, who are dying in the streets, because this fear is not just of you know the body, but fear of physical harm coming from other people, you know, and from the fact that there's so little support and love <coughs> happening around one. You know, it it tends to isolate us. The fear does, and that's probably the most painful part." of fear, is that we find ourselves feeling more and more withdrawn and out of touch with life, with people. When that happens, we also feel separate and out of touch with God. Now, I call it God. You may call it emptiness. You may call it nothingness. You may call it the absolute. I call it God. What God means to me is the source of all love in the universe that that is what God is. When we feel fearful, we feel disconnected and separate from that flow of love from God. And that is the most painful thing, is feeling cut off from God. It's not that God goes anywhere. It's that we leave. It's that our heart is closed off, and we're not feeling that connection with God. We're not feeling that flow of love through ourselves. And so there's more and more sense of isolation, of aloneness, of fear, of suffering as a result of that. So what do we do when we feel fear and mistrust arising inside of ourselves? The first thing is to see what the fears are. Start becoming more aware of fears as they arise inside of ourselves. It's paying more attention to them, naming them, identifying them. The more that we do that and we see them arise, the more we can create some space inside of ourselves for the fears to be there. The tendency that we have with fear and many other states is to judge ourselves because of the fear. As I said, when we're feeling fearful, we're not feeling loving, usually. When we're in a state of fear, we're not able to love. And so the judgment is that we're not able to love, that we're not a loving person. We judge ourselves because in a situation, we would like to extend our heart out and be loving, but we can't because we're fearful. And so we judge ourselves. Why can't I be more accepting in this situation? Why can't I accept my partner? And why can't I be more loving to this person? Why can't I extend myself out? We can't because the fear prevents us from doing that. And so if we judge ourselves, then we get more caught in the pattern of judgment and fear and negativity, of self-blame, of self-anger, and it just keeps going on and on. So if we're able to identify the fear and make some room in our heart for the fear to be there, 
that is the crucial point in working with it, is seeing it's there, being aware of it, being mindful of it, and just creating some space in the, in the heart for the fear to be there. If we create that space in our heart for the fear to be there, the fear will dissolve. Just through our openness, just through our acceptance, through our power of seeing, of awareness, the fear will start to dissolve. As the fears begin to dissolve, we start, we develop the ability to be able to offer love to the fear as well. Because the heart is more open, we're allowing the fears to be there, the heart is more open, we have more access to the love in our heart because it is open, and then we can direct and offer that love to the fear that may be there, and that further helps to dissolve the fear, to release and to let go of the fear. The way that we usually go about dealing with fears and other states of negativity is to want to smash it away, is to want to get rid of it, is to want to annihilate it, is to not want it to be there. Because it's a bad reflection about ourselves. Who wants to be fearful? Who wants to be angry? Nobody. We'd rather not have it. But when we try to get rid of it, what we're doing is we're creating new patterns inside of ourselves. We're creating new patterns of control. We're creating new patterns of suppression. Creating new patterns of denial inside of ourselves. And so nothing gets resolved. You know, it just keeps coming back to us. So as meditators, as developing the ability to sit is tremendous power and effectiveness in that because we can allow the fears to arise in ourselves and see them and not react to them. Don't react. You just sit. You watch it. You see it come up. No reaction. It's okay. Here's fear. Allow myself to experience the fear. Give myself permission to experience it, to feel it, to feel it in the body, to feel it in the mind. And that in itself is tremendously transforming to the fear itself. It will not stay there that long. It depends on the intensity of the fear. It depends to the degree, especially, of the aversion that we feel towards the fear. If we feel a lot of aversion towards our fear, it's more difficult to let go of the fear because the aversion towards it is strong, as in any other kind of state. But as we allow the intensity, as we see the aversion, as we see the tendency to react to it, and we watch all that, all those different patterns of the way that we're used to relating to fear, and we don't act from those patterns anymore, then it all starts to change. It's like alchemically within the heart, it starts to change. And it starts to fall away. We find ourselves feeling much less fearful than we did before. It's a kind of gradual process that happens. And in the absence of that fear, there is love. There is more love that we're feeling inside of ourselves. At the group this morning, we talked of two voices, the voice of fear and the voice of love or the voice of trust. Both of those voices are inside of ourselves. 
Nobody experiences fear all the time. Thank goodness. Imagine how painful that would be to experience fear all the time. There's also the voice of love inside. And every human being has that voice of love. Idi Amin has that voice of love. Saddam Hussein has that voice of love. It might be a very, very small voice at this point, but it's there inside. The voice of fear is very, very strong. It's very, very loud. So we all have those two voices inside. I feel a lot of what our practice is, is learning to be more focused inwardly, to be more sensitive, to be more intuitive to our heart, so that we learn to distinguish the difference between the voice of fear and the voice of love. As we start to pay attention to our fears, we really start to know the voice of fear. We can pick it up right away. Oh, there I go. You know, fearful of the future, fearful of losing control, fearful of what they are thinking of me. So many fears that are there. And the voice of fear is there. You know, it wants its part in creating suffering for us. <laughs> right? And then we begin to distinguish the voice of love, the voice of trust. You know, where it's okay to trust. It's okay to allow the situation. It's okay to let go of control. It's okay, you know, just to allow um, the, the uh, I mean, a good example for me is around Donna, the Donna situation, where I have needs that need to be met, you know, in having a mortgage and having car payments and living in society, and I give these retreats on a Donna basis. Right? Believe me, it's a big practice in trust because this is where my income comes from. I'm very reliant upon it. There's a part of my mind that says, gosh, you've got to change this around and start charging because this is just too difficult. And too, you know, there's, it's demanding too much trust. And yet, I know that that's why I'm in this situation. That's why I was a monk in Asia in which you go on alms around and you're, you live on the alms, the generosity of other people. Why am I teaching within the Theravada Buddhist tradition and leading these kinds of retreats on Donna basis is because there is the opportunity to learn trust, to learn faith. And that's a gift. It's difficult at times to do that. But that's the gift that's being offered. So there's the voice of fear that says, what happens if you don't get enough? And there's a voice of love that says, trust, you've always been given enough. You know, you've always had what you needed. It will be there. The voice a little bit louder sometimes, and the voice a little, kind of go back and forth. And the difference between the two, when there's a fear, there's a contractedness, and giving a retreat, whatever, is not pleasant. When there's the trust, there's the openness, there's the love, there's a capacity to give and to share without the fear of what you're going to get back. It's a very, very different experience because the flow of love of God, of the universe, is able to be channeled through you because the fear is not blocking it. We all have these voices inside of ourselves. So we learn how to distinguish them. And now to which, here, oh yes, here's the voice of fear again. Voice of fear, voice, okay, come in, I'll listen to you. I may not act upon you, I may not believe you know, but I'll listen. This is the voice of fear. Not to shut it out, but to say, okay, this is just the voice of fear. And then, ah, oh, he's the voice of love. How does that feel to, to listen to the voice of love? Yeah. Does it allow you to be more trusting? Does it develop more faith inside? 
This is the difference. And it happens, you know, just so frequently in the course of the day of meditation. Just listen to, as you're sitting, when the voice of fear is there, when the voice of love is there, and there's that choice at that moment. Are we going to follow the voice of love and a trust and a faith, or are we going to follow the voice of fear? It is the recognition of pain and suffering within ourselves and around us that we touch that becomes a prod to um, more awareness, to a deeper looking within ourselves at our life. And if I reflect upon the story, the life of the Buddha, it's always told that he had a very idyllic kind of life. And he was a prince and a kingdom and he had everything that he wanted. And the impression one got was that the man didn't have any suffering. And perhaps there wasn't a great deal of personal suffering. I mean, you know perhaps people in your life in which they don't seem to have a tremendous amount of personal suffering. You might know one person like that. <laughs> but not many. I mean, most people who we know are more like us. You know, real human in the sense of having a lot to work with. And as I look back in the Buddha's life and that story of how he came to be more awakened within himself, I think, well, he had a child and he had a beautiful wife and he had all the money, wealth, everything that he could possibly want. Everything was there for him, and he left it all. And I think, well, how happy and content could he have been <laughs> with it all? To leave that all behind, to go into the forest and live the life of an ascetic, which in those days was very, very difficult. I mean, they ate very little, they lived in caves, they're, you know, at the beginning of his, um, of his uh, spiritual sojourn, it was, I mean, he was living very ascetically for quite a long time, and he gave up all of that to live that way of life, and something inside of me says that there must have been a deep sense of a recognition of suffering, of sorrow, within himself, first of all to do that, and then to structure his teaching so much around suffering. The Four Noble Truths are suffering, the arising of suffering, the cessation of suffering, the path that leads to this is the ending of suffering, that leads to liberation. I mean, his whole focus in his dispensation was around that theme. And every teacher that I've met, the teaching that they give pretty much comes from what goes on inside of themselves and what they discover inside of themselves. So the man knew a lot about suffering. 
to know about suffering, to be able to teach it as effectively, as clearly as he did, must have meant that he really knew suffering inside of himself. He really knew what that was. And he knew it to the point that when he was liberated from that suffering, when he, as one person put, came to the end of birth and death, that he realized the end of birth and death, meaning that he realized that the conditions for rebirth of suffering within inside of himself, of rebirth of um, a, another incarnation, human incarnation, was destroyed, was finished. And he referred to it as before there was a house that was built, and the structure and the beams of the house were ignorance, were attachment, were aversion, were greed, and that all of these were like the pillars that were holding up this house. And with the knowledge, with the insight of reality, of who he was, of what phenomena was, that it was just cut. All the beams and the structure was cut through, the house collapsed. It was nothing for suffering to be built upon inside of himself. I don't think that his path was a very easy one. And the same for many of us. Many of us have chosen difficult incarnations. My understanding of choice on the level of incarnation is that before we are born into a human birth, there are certain decisions that we make. Decisions as to what our gender will be. Who will be male? Who will be female? Decisions as to our sexuality. Be homosexual, heterosexual, bisexual. Decisions as to who our parents will be, at least one of our parents, if not both of our parents. And oftentimes that is decided because there is karma left between those who we have lived with before and the way that we need to come to greater forgiveness and compassion and understanding is by living closely with these people. And in our discussion last evening, as we were talking about relatives and uh, problems of addiction and problems of abuse, etc. Well, it makes sense, at least to me, that we choose to live in a cluster huh, here on earth so that through being with those people and l learning more compassion and more forgiveness and more understanding, that we all grow spiritually. Another decision that is made is, what kind of culture are we going to live in? Will we live in a culture, that, like for instance, a, a, a third world culture like Thailand, 
or India, where there's a certain emphasis within the culture. And the spiritual emphasis is a certain spiritual emphasis. Here we may choose to incarnate into this kind of society because the lessons that we need to learn are most facilitated in living in this kind of culture. For instance, issues around generosity or power, which are very predominant in this kind of culture, where there's a lot of material uh, affluence, where there is, you know, where one country can influence the world in such a wise way, etc. We may be born into a country in Asia, in Thailand, a Buddhist country, because the basic principles of, um, of morality, of the precepts, of, of faith, um, are emphasized in that particular kind of culture. So it's not random, so to speak, where we incarnate into. We incarnate into the situation which is most effective for our learning. And as we incarnate into that particular lifetime, which is that the, our track to understanding, then within, as we come into that incarnation, there is a veil of forgetting where we don't remember where we came from. We don't understand where we came from. We find ourselves in a body. We find ourselves within a particular physical place in the world, in the universe. You know, with an environment around us. But we forget, we, we don't know our true nature, we don't know where we came from. And so, with this veil of forgetting dropping upon us, as we, we go through childhood and into adolescence, and we stumble along oftentimes, you know, kind of not really knowing where we're going, not being sure who we are, what life is about, and just kind of groping along, living but not really understanding so much what our spiritual path is, what our learning is, um, all of that until either the pain and suffering in our life, the loss of someone close to us, um, whatever, begins to awaken us, where we start to open our eyes and questioning ourselves more. Well, who am I? You know, what is my life about? Sometimes it doesn't have to be that a person has a tremendous amount of pain and suffering in their life, but that there is just a spark of awareness and truth within themselves that begins to light up the lamp of knowledge within themselves. Because I work with a lot of people, not everybody who comes to meditation is in a lot of pain and suffering. Some people come into it from a different place inside of themselves where their life is quite fine, but there is this spark of, you know, there must be something else, and what is that other else? And it is Dharma. It is truth. It is understanding. It's knowledge. And that gets lit inside of them, and that's what 
encourages them to search inside and to want to look and understand more. Almost inevitably, when we first begin to look inside, we don't like what we see. <clears throat> what we first usually get in touch with a lot is, shall we, shall we, shall we say, grosser emotional states, you know, the fear, the anger, the wanting, um, all of that, and we begin to judge ourselves as a result of that. Remember, judgment. <laughs> we start to look and we start to see what is happening inside, and so easily the mind finds an aversion for that, and we begin to judge ourselves as a result of that. In that process of looking and the aversion and the judgment, very easily we begin to deny aspects of ourselves. We bury aspects of ourselves. It can be a very unconscious pr process that takes place. Because who wants to see that stuff? Then who wants to own it? Who wants to take responsibility for it? Who really, who really wants to move into that? Not just because it's painful, that's bad enough, but because we think that's who we are, and we don't want to be that. I had a very important insight a few years ago when I was attending a two-month retreat. I was sitting with a Asian teacher, and during the retreat, um, all through the retreat, but especially from the middle to the end of the retreat, talked a lot about anatta, about uh, emptiness, no self. And as he was talking about it, I just kept getting this feeling that the way that I was looking, that I had been relating to Anatta in the past, was very much from a place of where I was when I first heard about Anatta. And so I traced back in my mind my whole relationship with no self, with emptiness, and I traced it all the way back. It took me back to my college days when I was in a lot of pain, there was a lot of anger, I didn't like my sexuality, there was just a lot of inner turmoil that was going on. So, the practice in those days was to take LSD. Vipassana <laughs> <laughs> was not yet invented in America. <laughs> so, we did it the quick way. We take LSD, and I would spend a lot of time walking in the woods alone. There was a lot of snow, and I'd walk through the woods, and I'd sit with the birds, and you know, 
And I would have these insights of, I realized that I wasn't who I thought I was. And I could see that what I had been identifying myself as who I was was not really who I was. I wasn't quite sure who I was, but I knew that I wasn't who I thought I was. That was clear. <laughs> yeah, we can find some humor in this. So then I got on a path of yoga and meditation, found myself in Asia. And I came across the Buddhist teaching in India, and then in, uh, in Thailand, the teachings of Ajahn Buddhadasa, who was one of my first teachers. And I would read his books in the monastery, and he would talk about anatta, of no self. Everything was impermanent. I knew that. Suffering, I knew that. And then anatta, no self. And my mind just grasped right onto that. I mean, just... And I embraced anatta, you know, so close to me. You know, this is true. There's no self. But mostly it was an intellectual understanding of no self. And what I realized at this two-month retreat that I did a few years ago was that all these years, my understanding of anatta, of no-self, was much more, it was more of an intellectual understanding of it based upon those earlier experiences. And as I look back at those earlier, that earlier part of my life, all those things that I didn't like about myself, like the fear and the rage and the anger and the judgment and the jealousy and the disliking of my sexuality, all of that stuff, that believing in anatta was a way of denying all of that. It was a way of saying, well, oh, this is not me anyway. All this stuff, it's not me. And this can easily happen in meditation and spiritual life is that we hear high ideals of who we are or who we're not and intellectually, philosophically embrace those and leave behind what's inside of us. This is known as spiritual bypassing. (laughs) We go around, so to speak, instead of through, you know, through the body, through the, uh, the physical body, through the emotional body, through the mental body, to the spirit body, we kind of want to go right around to the spirit body without first fully investigating and embracing the humanness. I mean, as a human, we have a physical body. We have an emotional body, we have a mental body, and we have a spirit body. We're all four of these bodies. In Hinduism, they call them sheaths. You know, like one layered on top of another. And we're all of these things. As we're human, we have all of these bodies. To deny any of those bodies is to deny who we are right now. As humans, we have all of these bodies, and they all have to be examined, they all have to be taken into consideration. 
in terms of our practice, in terms of our investigation. It's interesting because last night as we were talking, I felt like people were really owning up to that. They were saying, you know, well, this is, I have this issue in my life. I mean, I have an addiction. You know, I have been abused. Um, you know, I, you know, boundaries is an issue for me. There's an old question um, that sometimes gets passed around in, in Buddhism and Vipassana circles. Do we have to have a self before we can lose a self? Do we have to have an ego before we can lose an ego? It's an important question. Because in my way of looking at things, that for the great majority of us, unless one is very, very highly evolved, and there is not much in the way of issues, emotional and other, in one's life, it's very important to embrace the self, to know what the ego self is, to know what the ego is, to know what the ego's needs are. I mean, even with, you see, many teachers, especially Asian teachers, who come to the West and they live in a, you know, one kind of setting and teaching one kind of setting and being in their country where the devotees, the students, whomever, relate to the teacher in a certain way and there's a lot of protection in that because of the way, because of the tradition and the culture and the way it's structured. And so there's not so much room for sexual abuse, for instance, or abuse of power or money, whatever. But then they come to America, come to here, and then when they come here, you know, there isn't the, the structure set up for the relationship. And so there's all kinds of room for interesting things to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and they do happen, as we know. We, I mean, many of us have heard stories, and if you haven't, well, there's lots of good ones going around. And just read certain literature and you get all you want. It's, you know, it's like Dharma melodrama. I mean, it happens in cycles sometimes where, you know, two or three girls will drop in, you know, one month. Because it, you know, just kind of spreads where word gets out and then it, you know, goes on and on. Um, and some of, that, some of that is because the issues that those people needed to work with were not dealt with completely. And so they come here and the conditions are such that you know, things can happen and they do happen and it creates a lot of suffering both for, not only for the students, but also for the teacher. It's very painful. It's a good example of how not investigating enough the structure of the ego and the structure of the self, how that can be detrimental. It's very important to do that. It's very important to see what the ego is, what the ego's needs are. You know, the need for, um, you know, for others to like us, the, the need for affirmation, um, you know, the need from different kinds of feedback from people. All the, you know, all the fears and needs that the ego has to really be very 
very clear about that. And in a sense, that when you do that, you're more identifying what the self is, what the ego self is. So you're knowing the self better. And in that, you're also getting in touch with a lot of the emotional issues of the ego and the self. Because you're getting in touch with your angers, you're getting in touch with your fears, you're getting in touch with, you know, all that is the ego. As one begins to look at that and open to that and be very honest with that, then increasingly there's the possibility of transcending those needs of the ego. Sometimes you hear of people saying, like I have a friend who was a very wealthy um, developer before the recent recession, that is. And, I mean, he really built himself kind of an empire, you know. He came from very menial beginnings in North Carolina and just became very successful. And then this recession hit and it wiped him out. It just wiped him out. And so I called him expecting to get his secretary who would eventually get me through to him, you know. I called and he answered the phone. I said, wow, you, know, you never answer the phone. And he said, well, I had to let everybody go. I don't have any secretaries anymore. I had to sell the building. I sold the furniture. All I have is this office in my house left. And he said, it's taught me a lot about myself because I see before how I identified so much with my money and my success and my wealth. You know, and that proved to me who I was that identified who I was, all of that. And he said, now I see that that's not who I am. He said, and now I'm in the process of just destroying my ego. And I didn't say anything to him at the point because, you know, it wasn't appropriate right at that time. But it's not possible to destroy the ego. Destroying the ego will just create new patterns of judgment, of violence, of... Um, you know, all of those things that help to construct and substantiate the ego to begin with. One cannot destroy the ego. You can't smash the ego. But rather, to see what the ego's needs are, to open to what those needs are, you know, to accept what the, those needs, that they're there, and that they're part of the ego self. In a sense... I mean, there would be no reason to be here if, on this earth, as incarnated beings, unless we had some learning to do here. As the veil of forgetting drops, we wander through maya, we, we wander through the illusion. Part of that illusion is the illusion of the ego, is the illusion of the self. So to uncover that self, to uncover that ego, to see what it's composed of, to see what it's made of, helps us, is all a part of beginning to see through the illusion. If we deny that, if we push it away because of judgment, because of aversion, then we're not able to deal with what we have to see in order to become free of the illusion. So, in our practice, for instance, when we're experiencing 
pain and there's aversion and we push that away, then you know, we're pushing part of our experience away. When we experience a strong emotional state and we don't like it and there's judgment of that and on some level we push it away and we deny it, we suppress it, whatever, then it doesn't give us the opportunity to be able to look and see through and beyond that. Because we're denying it. And you can't transcend what you deny. You can't transcend what you don't accept. The whole Buddha's teaching was, his main concern was freedom from the samsaric cycle. He was not concerned about what took place before birth, nor really what was happening after birth, although he had very developed psychic powers, and he could tell where certain monks, what plane they would go to after they died. If you read the scriptures, you know, the one monk would say, where, you know, where is such and so? You know, he said, he has gone to this plane. This is what his work is on this plane. He was very developed psychically that way. But as far as his teaching was concerned, he was more um, concerned with how do we get released from the samsaric cycle of birth and death and rebirth. The cycle of birth and death and rebirth, not only in terms of human incarnation and the need to come back into a human form, but even more specifically, how to be released from the cycle of samsaric suffering within the lifetime so that one finds spiritual freedom within this present lifetime. That was his main concern. It was just that. The teaching that he gave was a teaching that was just based upon what he felt people needed just to be released from that cycle. And what he said was to um, look very closely at the aggregates, the five aggregates. Over and over he emphasized this. The body, perceptions, feeling, mind, and consciousness. We spoke about them the other evening in the evening talk. He said, look at these five aggregates, see into their nature. Really, they're the same thing as the bodies that I was just talking about. I said, physical body, emotional body, mental body, and spirit body. Okay, the five aggregates lie within the physical body, the emotional body, and the mental body. Okay, all those five aggregates lie within those three bodies. And so, we examine them. We look and see the arising of sensation, the arising of body, the sustaining of it, the cessation of it. The same thing with perceptions, arising of perception, dissolving of perception. Same thing with feeling. It's arising pleasant feeling, cessation pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling, neutral feeling arising, and then we it dissolves, we find ourselves experiencing another kind of feeling. The same thing with different mind states. Okay, arising and ceasing, all of it all the time. Consciousness itself, that aspect of our mind that is aware of this whole process and all the objects that are arising and ceasing, the consciousness itself is also impermanent. It arises along with the object that we're aware of. Earlier today I said mindfulness needs an object. Okay, mind, when we're mindful of something, we're mindful, we're mindful of something, we're mindful of our body, we're mindful of a, a sound or a sight or 
a, a feeling or a memory. We're, we're mindful of an object. We're mindful of the breath. That aspect of us that is mindful is consciousness. Consciousness is present in the process of us being mindful of something. It arises along with the object. Okay, so as I look at you, there's a sense door, there's the object. Consciousness is present in that moment. There is seeing consciousness. Okay, that consciousness arises with the object. It takes place together. Okay, it arises, a consciousness is arising and ceasing as is the object. As the object is arising and ceasing, consciousness is also arising and ceasing. In one of the monasteries that I stated in Thailand, it had a very large cremation tower in the middle of the monastery, and there were these loudspeakers hooked up to it. And every morning, the teacher would get on, he had this little hut, right? He would get in there on a microphone, and he'd say, Hen gai nai gai, hen vedana nai vedana, hen chit nai chit, hen tum nai tum. And he would say this over and over again, like at four o'clock in the morning, when you're out there doing walking meditation, trying to wake up without tea or coffee. And you're listening, you're listening to this. You're listening to this over. It was the first words that I learned in Thai. Right? It just sunk in because you heard it all the time. And there was nothing else at four o'clock in the morning, not even a cup of tea or coffee. And it meant see the body in the body, see the feelings in the feelings, see the mind in the mind, see the Dharma in the Dharma. And what he meant was, see the body in the body, that when, you're, when we're mindful of the body, that we're not looking at the body as just an object, like awareness or consciousness or mindfulness separate from the object. It's not, I am mindful of the body. Do you see the duality in that? I am mindful of the feelings. Can you see the duality in that? Can you see the sense of separation in that kind of awareness, which is mindful of something, but not in it, not penetrating enough into the object to really experience a sense of oneness with the object and the awareness and the mindfulness in that moment. It's a different experience. You can see for yourself. If you experiment with it sometimes. If you find yourself you know, aware of a sensation in the body, but there's a sense of distance between you and the sensation. Okay, and then as you see that, shift the focus a little bit more into the sensation itself and go deeper into it, deeper into the sensation. And see, as you do that, what happens to that sense of I or me in relationship to the sensation. That's not to say that you identify with the sensation. That doesn't mean you grasp hold of it, or you cling to it, or you push it away, or in any way relate to the sensation that way. It means that there's just more of a penetrating insight into the object itself. So, see the body in the body. Okay. See the feeling in the feeling. See the mind in the mind. Come closer to the experience of what it is that you're experiencing. And oftentimes in doing that, 
the sense of I, the sense of me, having the experience starts to fall away. There is just seeing. There is just experiencing. There's just feeling. There's just thinking. There isn't the duality of I am doing something, I am being aware of something, but rather there just is awareness. There is, in that moment, seeing, hearing, touching, feeling, thinking, whatever it is that's arising in that moment. Interestingly enough, as we start to experience that, a lot of the sense of ownership of I, of self, starts to fall away. Because we move more deeply into what I was talking about earlier, that state of duality, of mindfulness, of being mindful of an object, more into the purer state of just awareness. And awareness, not necessarily... There's, there's not a self or I or me being aware, but there is just awareness. And people who have done, you know, a fair amount of meditation, uh, especially, you know, you get the opportunity to experience this a little bit more at a longer retreat, you know, like as we're doing, or if you have the opportunity to sit, you know, a month, two months, that, that if the experience of that becomes clearer to you much more clearer, because there's enough focus, concentration, um, awareness, equanimity, to be able to see that way inside of ourselves. That kind of very clear, moment-to-moment kind of seeing. So the process of meditation and spiritual development I see as, for many of us, a combination of both of these things, where there is emotional healing taking place, where where there is increasingly a, a deeper feeling of oneness with the self, a feeling of Um, uh, of the deeper wounds within the heart, whatever um, karma that we came into this lifetime to heal in our relationships with our family, the people who we become intimate with in our life, or our lovers, our husbands, our wives, our children, whomever it is, that there is on that level of our being Um, a very pervasive kind of insight and healing that takes place, that is very instrumental in uh, in our growth. And I, I feel it is especially this way for those of us who grow up in this culture, in this period of time right now, also. It's a particular period of time. I mean, you hear so much about addiction, so much about abuse. I mean, it's coming, it's coming more to the awareness, arising to the awareness of the culture, so to speak. You know, it's, there's a healing that's taking place within the culture, within individuals, as a result of that. So, it's important that that be included for many of us 
as part of our spiritual development. Along with that, there is, at the same time, the gift of having access to a wonderful spiritual tradition like Buddhism that gives a very clear seeing into the nature of reality and a meditation practice that encourages a kind of looking and a kind of seeing which is unique to many of us. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very unique. I can't wait until Vipassana and yoga is, they start doing it in grade school, <laughs> in high schools. You know, when it starts to, you know, get, you know, the thinking, if not the actual practice, the ideas, the thinking of it. You know, of impermanence, of emptiness, you know, of you know, many of the Eastern ways of thought and, and, and looking at things where people start to think more about these things, even if they don't practice them. That's really the beginning of a lot of it. And I might say that's where many Asians have a head start amongst some of us in this culture in terms of the development of the practice because they grow up with a lot of that and there's a, 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 an acceptance of that and understanding on an intellectual level so they don't have to go through a lot of barriers, so to speak, um, in trying to understand those concepts you know, and open to them, etc., etc., because it's there to some degree and I think that that will happen to happen in this culture as well. So at the same time that there is you know, a emotional healing and there's the healing of the physical body, the emotional bodies, the mental body, all of that, um, there's at the same time deeper and deeper insight into the nature of who we are, the nature of reality. And that's the course that we're on now, it's the course that we're working towards, is towards that deeper understanding and the wisdom and love that comes from it.